Hello, it's Friday the 10th of November 2017. This is The World This Week with Carolyn Scott and Jack Foster. There are 26 lives that have been lost. The tragedy, of course, is worsened by the fact that it occurred in a church, a place of worship, where these people were innocently gunned down. Another mass shooting in the US prompts renewed calls for tougher vetting on gun ownership. But President Trump doesn't agree. This isn't a guns situation. Uh, this is a mental health problem at the highest level. We take a look at the reluctance not just to take action, but even to talk about reforming US firearm regulations amongst the country's lawmakers. If you're an immigrant who attacks Americans, then we talk about policy change. If you're born here in the United States, it doesn't seem that we're allowed to talk about how we make our country safer. This Sunday is Remembrance Day. We look back at the conflicts which gave birth to the poppy appeal and ask whether that symbol has been politicized in recent years. We speak to the colonists and trade unionist Kat Boyd about what she calls compulsory poppy lobbyists. It would have been a lot easier for me just to say nothing on this subject because the vitriol from the compulsory poppy lobbyists, as I like to call them, is real and it is, it's strong. Mehdi, Mehdi, the Usher Hall, stop it foo with seditious, rebellious people. Edinburgh's Usher Hall was indeed filled to the brim last Saturday with members of the Scottish Independence Movement and we'll have a special report on the Scottish Independence Convention's Building Bridges to Yes events. Another week and another cabinet minister down for Theresa May. Where does this sharp fall from Grace or Pretty Patel fit into the ongoing disaster which is Theresa May's premiership? She wouldn't have gone to Israel unthinking. This would have been deliberate. And could BBC Radio 4's The Archers Parish Council elections possibly be referencing real-world events? A recent general election, perhaps? Strong and stable. Vote Robert Snell for a better Ambridge. It's all very easy to come up with ideas, but there's no magic money tree, is there? Don't take that time with me! All that and more over the next hour on this edition of The World This Week. First, as the dust settles on the shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas last weekend, arguments for stricter gun controls in the US are back on the agenda. But even in the face of another tragedy, there still appears to be little support at the top, as Jack's been finding out. Just two weeks ago, a 29-year-old Uzbekistan immigrant ploughed a truck into pedestrians in New York, killing eight people in the name of the terrorist organisation Daesh, or Islamic State. And it was a matter of hours before President Donald Trump started making clear calls for major changes to the US immigration system. We want to immediately work with Congress on the diversity lottery programme, on terminating it, getting rid of it. We want a merit-based programme where people come into our U.S. President Donald Trump there responding to the New York terror attack which killed eight people with a swift call to overhaul the immigration system and introduce greater vetting of those wanting into the country. This week, however, saw an even deadlier attack take place in a rural church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, in which a gunman opened fire, killing 26 people. President Trump's response to that has been criticised for being hypocritical, where immediate action on immigration vetting was called for in 
the wake of New York, did Texas call for similar increased betting on, say, gun ownership? You know, you're bringing up a situation that probably shouldn't be discussed too much right now. We could let a little time go by, but it's okay if you feel that that's an appropriate question. I will certainly answer your question. If you did what you're suggesting, there would have been no difference three days ago. And you might not have had that very brave person who happened to have a gun or a rifle in his truck go out and shoot him and hit him and neutralize him. U.S. President Donald Trump has been steadfast in his assertion that nothing needs to change in terms of vetting for gun ownership in the wake of the Texas shooting, which saw 26 people killed. But why is that? Do his arguments stack up? Critics think that the reason might lie elsewhere, behind one of America's most powerful lobbies. The only way we stop this, the only way we save our country and our freedom is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist of truth. It is our purest weapon in this ongoing war for truth. So to every member of the lying media and the violent left demanding an apology, let me be very clear. It'll never happen. We don't apologize for warning America about chaos creators who want to impose their will upon us through their violence and lies. And we stand firm with the clenched fist of truth while they wilt with an open mouth of lies. An excerpt from the online channel NRA TV. Yes, the National Rifle Association has its own channel and its slogan is The Truth is Under Fire. The National Rifle Association is one of the United States' oldest and most powerful lobby groups, staunch defenders of the Second Amendment to the US Constitution, which protects the right to bear arms. Indeed, the NRA actually styles itself as a civil rights organisation. Figures from 2012 show that 88% of Republicans and 11% of Democrats in Congress had received an NRA PAC contribution at some point in their career. Of the members of Congress which convened in 2013, 51% received funding from the NRA PAC within their political careers, and 47% received NRA money in their most recent race. So with that kind of influence, it's little surprise that many have attributed President Trump's refusal to acknowledge the shooting in Texas, as he puts it, to be a gun situation. I think that uh, mental health is your problem here. This was a very, based on preliminary reports, very deranged individual. A lot of problems over a long period of time. We have a lot of mental health problems in our country, as do other countries. But this isn't a guns situation. I mean, we could go into it, but it's a little bit soon to go into it. But fortunately, somebody else had a gun that was shooting in the opposite direction. Otherwise, it would have been as bad as it was. It would have been much worse. Uh, But uh, this is a mental health problem at the highest level. It's a very, very sad event. It's a, these are great people and a very, very sad event. But that's the way I view it. US President Donald Trump batting away questions from journalists about the prospect of tightened gun laws following the shooting in a rural church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, which saw 26 people killed. Republican Senator from Texas Ted Cruz was also quick to weigh in on the notion that lax US gun laws might have played a role in not just last week's event in Texas, but mass shootings across the United States over the years. It is an unfortunate thing that the immediate place the media goes after any tragedy, after any murder, is politicizing it. We don't need politics right now. You know, I would note in New York we saw a terror attack just this week with a truck. Evil is evil is evil. 
Republican Senator from Texas Ted Cruz and Democrat Senator Chris Murphy accused Cruz and others touting a similar line of hypocrisy in light of the pace at which immigration law reform was proposed following the terrorist attack in New York the previous week. If you're an immigrant who attacks Americans, then we talk about policy change. If you're born here in the United States, it doesn't seem that we're allowed to talk about how we make our country safer. The fact of the matter is, as you know, well, these epic scale mass shootings are the ones that capture the nation's attention. There is, on average, a mass shooting every single day in this country. There are 90 people who lose their lives from guns every single day. And so if this rule applied that Ted Cruz is trying to tell us about, that you can't talk about policy change the day after a mass shooting, then you could never talk about policy change in this country. It's absurd. Democrat Senator of Connecticut Chris Murphy speaking to MSNBC there. Now, Jack, Chris Murphy talked there about the regularity of mass shootings in America. And this, of course, isn't the first such shooting this year, is it? No, but even more alarmingly, it's not even the most recent one. Now, just yesterday, four people were shot and injured in Philadelphia. You won't have heard much about that as it's likely gang-related and extremely common. We only tend to hear about mass shootings in the US when they don't involve gangs and where gunmen open fire seemingly indiscriminately on large groups of people, such as the shooting in Las Vegas only last month, which killed 58 people and injured almost 500. One interesting and quite alarming observation was made by the filmmaker Michael Moore, uh, which is that now the Columbine school massacre, by which uh, he made the film Bowling for Columbine, uh, is no longer one of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern US history, which uh, I think just take a moment to let that sink in. Mm. And regarding the, the opposition to better vetting for gun ownership, how do those arguments from President Trump and others stack up, i.e. that they would have made no difference? Well, the shooter, uh, Devin Kelly, was previously court-martialed and convicted for assaulting his wife and stepson. Uh, he bought dogs from Craigslist to use as target practice. He was discharged from the military for bad conduct, and he'd expressed support and admiration uh, for other perpetrators of mass shootings in the past. So it's probably not crazy to think that some kind of vetting system might have flagged some things up for him and maybe he wouldn't have had such easy access to the weapons he used to kill those 26 people last week. Um, the idea that it would have made no difference doesn't really stack up there. And as for the man who shot Devin Kelly, Stephen Williford, uh, he was a former National Rifle Association instructor. I suspect that any sort of vetting for gun ownership wouldn't have posed a huge barrier to him. Um, who can say? But I, I think it, it seems quite clear cut. When, when all those people who were calling for immigration reform just hours after the New York attack are now simply calling for prayer. Mm. 26 people killed last Sunday when a gunman opened fire inside a rural church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. More than 20 people were wounded, 10 of whom are still in critical condition. You're listening to The World This Week from the 10th of November. Still to come on the programme, this Sunday is Remembrance Day. We look back at the conflicts which gave birth to the poppy appeal and ask whether that symbol has been politicised in recent years. We speak to the columnist and trade unionist Kat Boyd about what she calls compulsory poppy lobbyists. It would have been a lot easier for me just to say nothing on this subject because the vitriol from the compulsory poppy lobbyists, as I like to call them, is real and it is it's strong. Mechte, mechte. The Usher Hall stop it foo with seditious, rebellious people. 
Edinburgh's Usher Hall was indeed full to the brim last Saturday with members of the Scottish Independence Movement and we'll have a special report on the Scottish Independence Convention's Building Bridges to Yes event. Another week and another Cabinet Minister down for Theresa May. Where does the sharp fall from grace for Priti Patel fit into the ongoing disaster that is Theresa Such May's premiership? wording, Carolyn. She wouldn't have gone to Israel unthinking. This would have been deliberate. And could BBC Radio 4's The Archers uh, parish council election possibly be referencing real-world events? A recent general election, perhaps? Strong and stable. Vote Robert Snell for a better Ambridge. It's all very easy to come up with ideas, but there's no magic money tree, is there? Don't take that time with me. We'll be back with all of that in just a moment after a quick message from the folks over at Common Space. Malik and uh, last year I did a one-week work experience placement at Commonsby. It was very important for me because I had never done any sort of work placement of such but in the comfortable environment where the people were really welcoming but it also gave me a, a true valuable experience of researching, communication, how just writing an article and how journalism can just help you open your mind to the world. But after my work placement, I it realised that no matter what career path I chose, working in Common Space helped me realise I wanted my voice to be heard. this week from the 10th of November 2017. This Sunday marks Remembrance Day in the UK and in many countries around the world, but just how have the symbolism and perceived politics of the poppy appeal changed over the years since the end of the First World War? Jack's been taking a look back for us in this report. When the First World War began in 1914, it was touted as the war to end all wars. Ramped up propaganda combined with the introduction of military conscription saw young men in the hundreds of thousands signing up to head off and fight in the trenches. Over 250,000 underage soldiers went off to fight in World War I. The youngest was just 12 years old but lied about his age to join, as many thousands did, often due to patriotic zeal, but equally it presented an escape from a life which at the time offered few if any prospects. The First World War lasted from July 1914 to November 1918. More than 70 million military personnel were mobilised in what remains one of the largest wars in history. Now, over 100 years on, of course, it also remains one of the deadliest conflicts in history. Estimates of the number of people who died during the First World War range from 8 to 21 million. And the stories of relentless trench warfare, shells and mustard gas serve to explain why so many who fought in that war never talked about it for the rest of their lives.
On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, so history remembers it, Armistice Day commemorates the cessation of hostilities on the Western Front. And whilst that commemoration began officially in 1919, it really did so the following year with the funeral of the unknown soldier. And in the years that followed, one image would become forever entwined with the hundreds of thousands who lost their lives during the First World War. An image inspired by John McRae's 1915 poem, In Flanders Field. In Flanders Field the poppies grow between the crosses row on row that mark her place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. In the century since the end of the First World War, though, that conflict proved to be anything but the war to end all wars. It would only be 20 years till the Second World War began, and which would unbelievably leap ahead of the First World War by some considerable margin in its overall death toll, earning it the dubious accolade of the deadliest conflict in human history. Understandably, given the proximity of the two wars, the overlap of many of those involved, and the shared grief of those left behind now spanning three decades, decades, Armistice Day and Remembrance Day now marked the huge loss from both wars, and the massive toll it had taken on families of those who had either died or been injured during their service. The poppy appeal became a symbol of a collective goodwill, raising huge sums for veterans and veterans' families, but it did something else, something which, whether its founders had originally intended is difficult to say, but among those who had seen those wars, there was a palpable sense that Remembrance Day and the wearing of the poppy should act as a reminder that not only should we never forget those who died on the battlefield, but that we should never allow history to repeat itself, to glorify those who died, but not the politics that sent them to the front line. And as the years have gone by, that distinction and separation of the poppy from the politics of war, indeed UK foreign policy itself, has become less and less clear. Harry Patch was the last surviving veteran of the First World War, and he died in 2009 at 111 years old. Reluctant to celebrate any sort of military till the end. Here he is speaking to Sky News in 2005 about his own personal Remembrance Day, the 22nd of September, when three of his friends were killed by a shell. Armistice Day is nothing but a show of military force. Remembrance Day is when I lost three mates. Harry Patch, who was the last surviving veteran of World War I, spoke often of the futility of that war and the contempt he held for the leaders responsible. Two civilised nations, English and German, fighting one another. Why? Why did we do it? The last surviving veteran of World War One, Harry Patch, who died in 2009, aged 111. This Sunday is Remembrance Day, but these days the poppy stands for a very different thing. Indeed, depending on who you ask, it could change considerably. For some, it's simply about honouring the war dead, politics aside. For others, it's about honouring the military and symbolically standing shoulder to shoulder with the forces wherever they happen to be placed right now. Politics, of course, gets a bit murkier there. And for others, it's 
a show of nationalistic militarism and a statement of support for UK foreign policy. In 2010, a group of British Army veterans issued an open letter to the Guardian newspaper complaining that the poppy appeal had become excessive and garish and that it was being used to marshal support behind British military campaigns and that people were being pressured into wearing poppies. Whether that's true or not is subject to debate, but one thing's for sure, if you choose not to wear a poppy, you'll have some explaining to do. Probably the most well-known broadcaster to have faced a backlash for doing just that is Channel 4 News' anchor Jon Snow, and it's not hard to see why so many people feel pressured to wear a poppy, especially in the media, given their reactions to those that don't. For example, the actress Barbara Windsor's comments to Sky News a couple of years ago. Babs, what would you say to those who don't want to wear a poppy? I'm going to sod off for all I care. <laughs> well, we, we do have to apologise for your language, but we get, we get the sentiment. We get the sentiment. Oh, gosh. Well, it's not really, because, you know, sod is dirt, isn't it? Earth, earth, you know. <laughs> you can, you, you can throw dirt or, at them and they, tell them to they, go away. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Actress and Poppy Appeal ambassador Barbara Windsor talking to Sky News about those who don't wear poppies. And poor old Sienna Miller, the actress who came under relentless criticism for not wearing a poppy on the BBC's Graham Norton chat show in 2015 was forced to make this cringe-inducing apology a few days later on ITV's Good Morning Britain. Quite a lot has been made about the fact that you didn't wear a poppy when you appeared on television a few on days Graham ago. On Graham Norton, yeah. I had a poppy on, funnily enough, and I was wearing a dress that was like crepe paper basically and as I was going on I looked down it was tearing at the dress and they'd said my name and so I whipped it off but um it's unfortunate that it's been made such a huge kind of it's really snowballed apparently and of course I don't think there's anyone in this country that isn't grateful and respectful and never would want to cause offence and wear a poppy all the time but you can't please everyone and I meant no disrespect of course I didn't. Actress Sienna Miller on Good Morning Britain in 2015 apologising for not wearing a poppy when she appeared on the BBC's Graham Norton show. Now Sienna Miller's poppy of course had simply fallen off but many actively choose not to wear one and the reasons behind that are perhaps ironically illustrated by the official promotional song for the 2015 Poppy Appeal, which, on the face of it, couldn't have been a better choice. Joss Stone aside, Eric Bogle's No Man's Land is perhaps the most scathing critique of militarism and the futility of war ever written. Except the verses whose lyrics offer up that scathing critique of war, indeed make the whole point of the song, were conspicuously absent from that version released to coincide with the poppy appeal. Namely, this verse. Did you really believe them when they told you the cause? You really believe that this war would end war? The suffering sorrow, the glory, the shame, the killing, the dying, it was all done in vain. For Willie McBride it all happened again, and again, and again, and again. 
Eric Bogle singing No Man's Land there. And Eric Bogle said of Joss Stone's somewhat sanitised version that he would have wished for a version that was truer to his original intentions, which he said were to illustrate the utter waste of war while paying tribute to the courage and sacrifice of those brave young men who fought. Joining me on the line now from Glasgow is the columnist and trade unionist Kat Boyd, who's written in the past about how the wearing of the poppy has become more of an obligation than a choice. Kat, what exactly do you mean by that, given that it obviously isn't compulsory? Well, I have written about it in the past, and if you want to you know, see my point illustrated, you can look at some of the comments um, on Twitter that appeared after I wrote the article, um, saying that you know there was such a thing as compulsory poppyism. Um, and that kind of goes to show that you know it would have been a lot easier for me just to say nothing on this subject um, because the vitriol from the compulsory lobbyists, the poppy lobbyists, um, as I like to call them, is real and it is, it's strong. What sort um, of vitriol are you talking about then? Oh, you know, people who say that I'm disrespecting uh, disrespecting the dead, um, that I am running an anti-British agenda, you know, just, just lots of, you know, the the usual, um, you know, stuff about being quote-unquote unpatriotic. A lot of the arguments um, around the poppy are that the remembrance should be a, a personal act and that a lot of people who don't wear a poppy say that this should be a, a personal moment of reflection as much as, as anything else. But is there not something to be said for the collective act of honouring the hundreds of thousands of people who've died in the name of the state? Yeah, I think if we um, applied that principle across the board, that would be... Um that would be a good thing. I would like to, you know, remember people in my own way. Um, in previous things I've written, um, I talk about my granddad and his experiences of fighting in the Second World War. He never wore a poppy. He never attended Remembrance Day. And, you know, I can absolutely swear that he spent time, you know, having personal reflection for um, friends that he'd lost and the things that he'd seen and also, um, as he put it, the, the things that he was asked to do. Um, I think that there is a space for collective remembrance of, um, you know, people who have died, you know, fighting fascism um, and we don't apply those same rules to people who, you know, died in the um, fighting um fascism in Spain, we just don't apply those same rules. So I think mm. there needs to be a recognition that there is um, uh, there's a particular tone around um, you know, wearing of the poppy. By the way, I don't care if people wear a poppy, they wear a poppy, that's fine. People should be able to remember the way they want to remember. What I do have a problem with is the idea that it's compulsory, that if you don't do it, then somehow you're being disrespectful. If you want examples of this, then the example that's you know so obvious is... Um, James McLean, the footballer, um, who chose not to wear a poppy and, you know, is held up as, you know, some kind of, of traitor, um, you know, which is just absurd. People should be able to remember how they want to remember. Um, and compulsory poppyists claim that, you know, they are the only people who are remembering and that you have to have a giant poppy on, you know, in the front of your car or your T-shirt or in a bag. All of these different things, they don't say remembrance to me. Um, and people should be able to remember how they want to. Uh, the symbolism of remembrance aside, do you think it's appropriate uh, for a developed country such as the UK to have to rely uh, on charitable donations to support families of those killed in service or, or those who need care as a result of injuries sustained fighting in the country's wars? 
I mean, absolutely. It doesn't surprise me that it has to rely on charity. I mean, I've seen recently in the Sunday Herald um, the, the family of soldiers who were killed in Iraq, you know, still talking about the injustices that they have suffered. And um, it doesn't surprise me at all that um, that those families have to rely on charity. I mean, this is the state of, of Britain in 2017. Finally, before I let you go, uh, this Sunday uh, is Remembrance Sunday. Uh, what will you be doing at 11am? Um, I'll be thinking about my granddaughter. The economist and trade unionist Kat Boyd there. Remembrance Day is this Sunday, the 11th of November, on which a two-minute silence will be observed at 11am outside the Cenotaph in London and war memorials across the country and in Commonwealth countries across the globe. This is Jack Foster for The World This Week. This is The World This Week from Friday the 10th of November. Members of the Scottish pro-independence Yes Movement, or um, Independence Movement, gathered in Edinburgh last Saturday for the Scottish Independence Convention. Carolyn went along and has this report for us. I'm at Edinburgh's Usher Hall bright and early on a Saturday morning as thousands of members of Scotland's pro-independence Yes Movement flood in for a full day of speeches at the Scottish Independence Convention. And as we head inside, Elaine C. Smith, convener of the Scottish Independence Convention, takes the stage to kick things off. Hello! Speak to me. What a sight this is, eh? This is fantastic. And they say the movement's dead, eh? <clears throat> Welcome. Elaine was quick to state the importance of a broad, diverse pro-independence movement. It is, it is something we have to say very loud and proud here today. That if we are to win independence, we cannot in, in many ways do it on our own. But I have to say, and the SNP, I've said this many, many times, the SNP cannot win independence in this country without this movement. They cannot do it without us. That message of bringing back together the Yes movement, of building bridges to Yes, the Scottish Independence Convention's motto, is woven through the entire day. The hallways are lined with stalls from the Yes campaign, Women for Independence, Democratic Left Scotland, Commonweal and many more. The day is split up into several segments with speakers from all aspects of the Yes movement and the key message seems to be learning the lessons of 2014 and preparing for the next time. I caught up with Elaine C. Smith and asked her if she felt that the broad Yes movement was as strong today as it was on the 18th of September 2014. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think in some ways it's it's stronger. That doesn't mean you're going to have you know 100,000 people out in the streets or anything like that. But maybe you could. Who knows? But but there certainly is. A, you know, if I had if I'd thought at that time once the vote was over that 45, 46 percent would have gone back to 35, 34 percent. It's not stayed. It stayed hasn't moved. And it, it, for me, it's not it's not come back in the box. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's out there in the way they were. In engaged in the referendum campaign but for those groups that did get energised and innovated by it and all those political groups and parties, they're still there and uh, I think that's what a conference like today demonstrates but also they're there and want to know how do we do the next bit 
How do we increase our vote? How do we get out there and reach people who maybe were swithering or maybe voted no with a reluctancy or a heavy heart? And I know many of them, uh, actually. Um, so uh, I, I think the discussions about the country we want to live in, the country we want to build, are really important to have now. It doesn't matter if there's a referendum, you know, in five years, we need to have these discu these discussions. So that's where I think the strength is. Well, thank you very much for speaking Pleasure. to Pleasure. The day was split into four key areas. The first, focusing on voters, saw comprehensive research delivered by Ian Black of Harriet Watt University. Audrey Britt discussed the language of persuasion. Commonwealth Director Rob McAlpine drew on the words of those before him to discuss how the next campaign should look and make some predictions on just when that campaign may be needed. We still sometimes think that this campaign begins with a referendum, but it doesn't. A proper effective campaign to transform a nation like this is constant and ongoing. Most of what I'm going to talk about here are the things that we need to do to get to a referendum, um, not what you would do in a referendum. So can I start first of all with the timescale? And I want to say this really, really carefully. Ian and I looked at what everybody was saying in some detail. Next year, no referendum, not even a possibility. Don't think about it. Yes, voters don't want it. 2019, this is when people are thinking Brexit is maybe starting to happen. Probably not. That's probably not when we're going to see the, the next referendum. But there is a genuine will, it would appear, with people that once they've had six months or a year to see what's been happening with Brexit, that if the set of circumstances they're feeling in their life is making them uncomfortable, and at the same time they can see a case for Scottish independence which suggests that's the better route, they are potentially open potentially open to being asked the question again, do you want to rethink? In fact, I was quite surprised some of the no, no voters were surprisingly open to this. Yes, come back and talk to me if it doesn't go well. Um, so this is really important. Now, it's not a guarantee. Don't pen it into your diaries. But the first thing that I want to say is, 2020 is a serious window. If we are not ready to fight that campaign in 2020 and these circumstances come around, we have made a very big mistake. Jean Freeman, SNP MSB, closed part one discussing Scotland's welfare now and after independence. Part two was focused on groups of voters. Casey Tang spoke of the younger generation, Jim Stamper of the older generation. Dr Marsha Scott discussed how to engage women voters. I think if I, if I can get one thing across, it's that when we talk about any group in Scotland, we need to understand that gender matters. It doesn't trump always. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to use that word. Um, but what it does do is it, it's relevant. And closing part two, Liam Stevenson, Yes activist and founder of the Thai campaign, spoke about politics for people who don't do politics, reaching out to the working classes. I believed and fought for an independent Scotland that was free of food banks, free from austerity, free of hardship and class inequality. Of course, dismantling the British state with its imperialist and colonial history was pretty far up my checklist. But like many other people in this room today, my engagement was much deeper than that. I heard the cry of those impacted by wealth inequality, austerity, de-industrialisation and community breakdown. 
Those voices who feel voiceless and unable to change the collective circumstances. And like many of them, I saw Scottish independence as an alternative to that fate. It was a vehicle to inspire, encourage and create the change that our society desperately needs. I saw the impact that those arguments were having. I saw people change from no to yes. Every single meeting, someone would come up and tell you at the end, I've listened to the arguments, I'm going to change the way I'm voting, or I've got off the fence, I'm going to vote yes. Because that, that campaign was about social justice, it was about progress, and it was about moving forward together. But ultimately, the referendum campaign of 2014 ended a lot differently from where it began. You'll probably remember discussions about cuts to corporation tax, appealing to the middle classes. But by the time the, the conversation was ended, we were having a national conversation, discussion and debate about acutely left-wing ideals. From social justice to wealth inequality to closing down food banks to overturning austerity. The next time around, if we want to win, that's exactly where we have to begin. We have to be having these conversations that appeal to working class people because when we win the working class vote, we win independence. After a short theatrical performance from the inimitable Alan Bissett, part three, The Answers People Need, saw a video presentation from Oxfam's Catherine Trebek, SNP's George Caravan discussing the all-important issue of money, and Commonweal's Craig Dale delivering research on finance and the economy. And Leslie Ruddick took to the stage to close off part three. Mechte, mechte, the Usher Hall, stop it foo, with seditious, rebellious people. who dare to dream, who dare to plan, and key point here, have come here in an entirely self-organised way. For Scotland, that has so often been a bit led, that is revolutionary. Because what's brought you here today and folk watching on the internet is not a party membership, it's not habit, it's not somebody with a clipboard, it's your own folk. It's your own folk coming powerfully together where you live, realising that the future can't be achieved for all the things that we care about, whether it's land reform, whether it's local power. Yeah, we can get somewhere on those things soon, but in the long term, we're hitting against like a school uniform that's four sizes too small already, and we're still growing. Part four looked at reaching the places other politics don't reach. Radical independence campaigns Jonathan Shaffey and Scottish Green Party co-convener Maggie Chapman spoke of the lessons of 2014, building on the social campaigns of the past two years and knowing your local area. This morning, Ian and others talk, talked about the type of engagement that would be most effective. The one-to-one -one conversations with folk, where we listen more than we talk, where we tell our stories and let others tell theirs. It won't be politicians arguing on television that win this, nor celebrities in glossy magazines. It will be you, all of us, having conversations in pubs, at work, at home, in the shops, in our communities, that will matter. 
These conversations and how they relate to our daily, daily lives will carry much more weight than another political stunt that an unsympathetic media could just choose to ignore. Jonathan talked about some of the things we can learn from the United States. But I think that sometimes the best ideas don't necessarily come from across the Atlantic. They come up Leith Walk. Arguably, the biggest applause of the day came when Alex Salmond was on the stage, and after some quick jokes about the wee ginger dog and his leadership abilities, Alex Salmond moved on to the subject of Catalonia, a subject that had been mentioned by many guests over the course of the day. But the reception he himself received was quickly overshadowed by the standing ovation received by the guest he introduced, Anna Arke, talking about the movement in Catalonia. The difference between the people who know what's going on is the people who are prepared to say it and those who keep their mouth shut in this country and elsewhere because it's not convenient to tell the truth when they see oppression of a people trying to make a democratic, peaceful expression of their right of self-determination. So it is not... and never has been our role to tell Catalans what to do. Catalonia isn't Scotland and Scotland isn't Catalonia. That's not our role, but our role should certainly be to show solidarity with those who've been oppressed under democratic rights so brutally infringed over the last few weeks. And therefore it's my enormous pleasure to ask you to welcome a founding member of the National Coordination for the Popular Referendum of Catalonia. Someone who has uh, become renowned internationally for her leadership in grassroots activism, heavily involved in the current drive for, for Catalonia's independence. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, welcome to the stage and show your appreciation for and solidarity for Anna Arke. I'm a Catalan, like many other millions of Catalans, loyal to the proclaimed Catalan Republic. My, our president is the president of the legitimate Catalan government of the Catalan Republic, El Molt Honorable Carles Puigdemont. My, My vice president is Oriol Junqueras, and the legitimate Catalan ministers are Jordi Turuy, Josep Rui, Raúl Romeva, Dolors Bassa, Merichay Sarret, Clara Ponsatí, Joaquim Ford, Merichay Borràs, Toni Comín, Lluís Puig and Carles Mundó. All of them, the legitimate government of the Catalan Republic, being jailed and forced to live abroad because of the Spanish political, judicial, and police violence. This is a European disgrace. This is a disgrace for the basic democratic standards, and therefore we demand to free 
Catalan European citizens political prisoners and we communicate that Catalan people will defend its institutions and the democratic, legal and legitimate Catalan Republic. I caught up with Alex Salmond and asked him if he were in the ousted Catalan President Carlos Puigdemont's shoes, what would he do now? Well, I think I'd probably look at an Irish answer that I wouldn't have started from here. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I, actually, I spoke to Mr. Pugham on the day he was elected, and I also had a meeting with him in London, where I, uh, I privately gave him the benefit of my advice. The, I, I couldn't say he followed it, but, uh, I, you know, it's, you're in different circumstances. Uh, I think in general terms, I'd say, make the best of the uh, progress that's being achieved and try to minimise the, the difficulties. Obviously, it's a very difficult situation, but, you know, in any, any political situation, look for the areas of weakness in your opponents. I would have thought one of the areas of weakness you would look for, I think there's a, a dam waiting to burst on international condemnation of the actions of the Spanish state, which are beyond the pale of uh, democratic acceptability. Do you think that this is going to impact upon the Yes movement in Scotland's support of the European Union the way that they haven't? Well, I think, I think incidentally, that, that might be the uh, effect. I mean, no, Catalonia isn't Scotland, Scotland isn't Catalonia. The two constitutional situations are very different. People are fond of saying to me in, in Catalonia, look, uh, you know, you came to this gentleman's agreement with David Cameron back in 2012, you know, why can't Senor Ahoy behave like a gentleman like Mr Cameron? And what I'm trying to point out is, you know, look, there was a kind of like 70 years before that <laughs> when Westminster government did everything they could, not by sending in police to knock people over the head, but by a few other devious and underhand tactics. You know, two million people signed a, a covenant in, uh, in the early 50s and they were told to go and, well, go away and play. Uh, so the idea, you know, this the Edinburgh Agreement was something that was something conjured up because, oh my goodness, let's, uh, let's go out and play cricket, chaps. Uh, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it was a, a more than half century of consistent agitation and struggle and parliamentary progress and painful political mobilisation, which led to the circumstances of the Edinburgh Agreement. So, Catalonia isn't Scotland, Scotland isn't Catalonia. In terms of lessons for Scotland, I'd have thought disillusionment with the European Union leadership would be, uh, would be the most significant, which probably makes something which for other reasons I thought was the, the best policy position for the independence movement and that is to say EFTA membership, at least as an interim stage, uh, more likely than, uh, than it was prior to the Catalonian situation. Uh, I, think, but I think it's right for, for good Scottish reasons, uh, as well as for uh, negative attitudes towards, uh, towards the European Union leadership. I think it's the, it's the right move to make in terms of uh, the maximum internal unity in Scotland and also the ability to offer what people are looking for just now, which is like an island of clarity and a, a sea of uh, a sea of confusion, uh, which politically EFTA membership could do. It's always good when you can point to something tangible, which, which people would accept can be achieved in a relatively short period of time, uh, and say, you know, this is what we're after. Not that you have to dot every I and cross every T, but as, as a con constitutional concept of what is your model for Scotland. It doesn't preclude, of course, full European Union membership and over a period of time. It doesn't. But it secures the economics. And right now, 
I would put an anchor on the economics. Uh, so th- th- I think it's probably an effect might make a consensus on that policy position more realisable than it was before the Catalan situation. But, you know, I, I think probably the last thing people in Barcelona right now <laughs> are thinking about is what is the impact of, of our uh, trauma uh, on uh, the positioning of Scottish constitutional politics. Absolutely. Well, Alex Salmond, thank you very much for joining us in the world this week. Great pleasure. Former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond speaking there. A busy day with a lot of speakers, and to those that made it to the end, a surprise appearance from the actor David Heyman to read the Catalan Defence Commission Scotland's declaration in support of Catalonia. This is Carolyn Scott for the world this week. And we should note that you can catch that statement from David Heyman on our Twitter feed at underscore world this week. And if you're listening to the show after Friday evening, you should also be able to view most of those speeches in full on our YouTube channel. Just look uh, on YouTube for the world this week. You are listening to the world this week. How many times can we say the world this week? <laughs> from the uh, 10th of November. Uh, the world this week is, of course, brought to you in partnership with Common Space, commonspace.scot and at the common space on twitter and if you'd like to make a donation or open up a subscription it's entirely optional but it does make a huge difference to the running of the program you can head over to worldthisweek.co.uk and a huge thanks also to those who have already set up a monthly subscription Uh, we very much appreciate your support Uh, we are also on twitter at underscore world this week and on facebook and you can subscribe to this program via your favorite podcast app so you need never miss an episode ever again And in case you missed that, you're listening to The World This Week from the 10th of November 2017. <laughs> now, news emerged at the beginning of this week that the UK's International Development Secretary, Priti Patel, had been conducting secret meetings with Israeli officials during the summer. A sequence of events then ensued that which saw her become the latest of Theresa May's embattled cabinet to step down. Jack has more. After a snap general election which saw her lose her majority in Parliament, Brexit talks, which are now more reminiscent of an episode of Faulty Towers with each passing day, and the recent resignation of her Defence Secretary Michael Fallon for touching a journalist's knee, well, you could say that Theresa May really could have done with one of those weeks where nothing much happened at all. That was not to be, though. International Development Secretary Preeti Patel, now the former International Development Secretary, was sacked by the Prime Minister on Wednesday after it emerged that she'd been involved in secret off-the-books meetings with numerous Israeli officials during a family holiday in the summer. To get us up to speed on the twists and turns of this story, and there are many, is the journalist and political analyst Jim Ensom, who joins me on the line now from London. Jim, first of all, what went wrong for Priti Patel? Well, Priti Patel is no fool. Um, as the International Development Secretary, I've heard good things about the way she worked. She was certainly always been a high flyer in the Conservative Party. She came in in 2010. Um, she originally worked for the Conservative Party before she became an MP. She worked for William Hague when he was leader. Um, then she went off to work for a PR firm called uh, Weber Shandwick, um, advising major companies like British American Tobacco and the drinks company Diageo. That brought her criticism because she's got liberal views on smoking and drinking. So basically, she is no fool. So, you know, people are asking, why was it that on a family holiday, and I think most people think that a family holiday is a family holiday, we don't do work, she took time to go out, but on 
more than a dozen official meetings, um, you know, with Israeli government officials and politicians, um, including, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, without apparently going through the Foreign Office. She was accompanied in those visits by Lord Polak, the honorary president of Conservative Friends of Israel. She is no fool. Why did she do this? Well, I think we can go somewhere into this because she knows what a political hot potato Israel is, the Golan Heights and Palestine. Mm. The real backstory, Jack, to me, is it's the standoff between the Foreign Office and DUFID. DUFID, the Department for International Development, it deals with overseas aid. It does projects around the world in education, health, social services, but it is seen, it's always been seen by the Foreign Office as a bit of soft diplomacy. It was set up you know, it, it's a more recent offering. It was set up and split out of the, the Foreign Office. And as a sort of soft diplomatic arm, etc., the Foreign Office feels ownership. And I think if you go back a little while, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson told a Commons committee it would be, and I quote this, a colossal mistake in the 1990s to divide the Department for International Development from the Foreign Office. And he then subsequently went on to tell the Sun, if we're going to be this great global campaigner for free trade, then we've got to maximise the value of overseas engagements. And this was really, really seen by a lot of people as a power grab to get back to the Foreign Office, the work of DUFIT. So, after the snap election in June, Priti Patel was reappointed as Secretary of State for DUFID, but... Two of her junior ministers, Rory Stewart and Alistair Burt, were appointed to joint positions in both her department, Duffit, and the Foreign Office. Stewart is Minister for the Duffit and also Minister of State for Africa at the Foreign Office. And Burt is a Duffit minister as well as has responsibility for the Middle East and North Africa at the Foreign Office. So it's seen as a power grab back from him. And therefore, she wouldn't have gone to Israel unthinking this would have been deliberate. If we were to go back to earlier this year, um, we would have been talking about the possible uh, members of Theresa May's cabinet that might be on the way out would be perhaps Philip Hammond. There was a lot of talk about that. Uh, certainly throughout the year, there's been plenty of speculation that Boris Johnson might go. Certainly, if you ask almost anyone in the UK who should go, they, they might say Boris Johnson was the man. Would anyone have ever predicted that Priti Patel would have, would have been um, a a scalp? No, absolutely um, not. Um, On top, of course, was... of Michael Fallon uh, within the space of only two weeks. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually less than one week since uh, she lost her defence secretary, and who would have thought that at the time? But of course, that was Negate that brought that down. <laughs> no, nobody would have thought that Pretty Patel. She backed, she was one of the class of 2010. Um, she backed Theresa May. She's um, hard on, you know, hard on Brexit, etc. And nobody would have thought, but suddenly it all came out. Now, it came out as a result of sort of leaks to journalists, etc. And she accused the Foreign Office of briefing against her. But nobody in their right mind could think that she could possibly hold more than a dozen meetings while on a family holiday in Israel with senior government officials hmm. um, and the, the, the prime minister without it coming back. She must have known it would come back. Uh, and that's the sort of 
strange thing. So um, she she knew what she was doing. She must have done. Now she could have made a complete bad political mistake, but was she trying to oust Boris Johnson from his seat? Because what's for sure now is Theresa May by demanding her resignation. In a, by any other terms, she was sacked, pretty Patel. But if she thought that was a means of destabilising Boris Johnson, which would be no bad thing for Theresa May, it's backfired on her because Theresa May can't get rid of Boris Johnson right. at all Seems now. Seems like the safest job in, in Britain right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Before I let you go, um, what about um, Preacher Patel's successor? Well, it was obvious that Theresa May was going to go for somebody who backed Brexit uh, under pressure to put a woman in the post and of course she's got to normally choose from somebody who's already been a minister of state somewhere along the line. So of course all the things were in the hat. There was Andrea Leadsom, there was Cheryl Cheryl Gilliam, uh, Caroline Dynage, Theresa Villiers, but of course, as we now know, it's Penny Mordunt. She's a former Minister of State for the Armed Forces at the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, the first woman to take up that post, which is important, and perhaps also most usefully for her, she's also a Royal Navy reservist. So I think she should be um, able to battle her way through politics in a way that Priti Patel has failed to. Journalist and political analyst Jim Ensom there. And Carolyn, I know you're a big fan of uh, some odd political trivia. Huge so fan. I've got some for you on the new International Development Secretary, Penny Mordaunt. Uh, did you know she is a descendant of Philip Snowden, who was the first Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer? I did not know that, Jack. Did you also know that she's a cousin of Angela Lansbury, who uh, played Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote, and was, of course, in Bedknobs and Brunswick? Of course. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you did know that. <laughs> who doesn't know that? And you probably remember as well, it was Penny Mordaunt who gave uh, a speech in late 2014 to the House of Commons. Uh, it was her maiden speech, I think, which was littered with various uses of the word cock and laid uh, as a result of a dare. I did know that part. She also gave some other quite amusing speeches about her time in the armed forces and being uh, given lessons on how to best look after your testicles in the fields. On that note... When the Ambridge Parish Council found itself one man down last month, the obvious and easy choice was Linda Snell's husband, Robert. But when 33-year-old mother of two, Emma Grundy, managed to pull together enough signatures, an election was forced and the campaign has been underway for the past few weeks now. For those listeners who've lost track entirely, uh, we're talking, of course, about the long-running uh, Radio 4 serial, The Archers. Uh, both Callan and I rarely miss an episode. Wow. So we want, well, I miss less episodes than Carolyn <laughs> does. Uh, so we wondered if this fictional election campaign might be based, at least to some extent, on a real campaign which took place not that long ago. Here's a clip uh, from the show in which Emma Grundy talks with her sister-in-law, Nick, uh, about her opponent in the, the race, Robert Snell's glossy campaign literature. What's brought on the bacon butty? <sighs> this. Oh. It's Robert's campaign leaflet. Strong and stable, vote Robert Snell for a better Ambridge. Compared to my efforts, black and white, no pictures, printed on a sheet of A4 and it's slightly off-centre. I've got three jobs, two kids and no money. <laughs> oh, watch out. Oh, no. Morning, ladies. Sorry to interrupt. Um, is Fallon here? No, wasn't quite sure what words were swirling about in there with your partially masticated sandwich, Emma. A word of advice. Even as a potential community representative, publicly consuming a bacon sandwich so voraciously can have disastrous consequences, as we well know. (laughs) 
An excerpt there from BBC Radio 4's The Archers. Prospective parish council candidate Emma Grundy discussing her opponent Robert Snell's campaign leaflets with her sister-in-law Nick. And toward the end, the inimitable Linda Snell warning of the dangers of eating a bacon roll on the campaign trail. Now, does this remind you of uh, real, anything from real, the real world of politics, Jack? Well, it's such subtle satire that it's difficult to <laughs> make the links, but I think that maybe the use of the term strong and stable, uh, maybe the magic money tree and maybe the bacon sandwich might be referring to exactly those things which happened uh, in British politics in the past few years. And I know that when you heard that in The Archers, when you were listening on a daily basis, how excited were you that you were going to try and get The Archers on this show to have a genuine discussion about The Archers? I've been pushing for the last couple of weeks. (laughs) Uh, We managed to get it in this week. I I do think it was an interesting, you know, maybe there's a parallel there, the the underdog, um, you know, the Robert Snell, the the old money, uh, old guard of the village, isn't that interesting in it, but he's got all the glossy leaflets versus the plucky young single mother, um, you know, who's who's just standing for because she believes in it. What is that? What could that possibly be saying? Well, I'll tell you what, if any of our listeners have the slightest clue what we're going on about, please do <laughs> please do interact with Jack about this on Twitter, because he's quite upset that nobody else in the world is talking about this on social media or on any media right now. So feel free to, to drop him a line and chat about the archers. Just time now for our alternative markets, where we highlight figures we believe to be more important to you than the FTSE 100 or stocks and shares. This week, we're looking at figures relating to gun control and gun crime in the United States. In 2016, there were 58,799 gun-related incidents, 15,085 killed, 30,618 injured, 3,799 children under the age of 18 injured or killed, that included 673 under the age of 12, and there were 383 mass shootings, that's more than one per day on average. Until next week, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, underscore World This Week, and you can like us on Facebook too, you can subscribe to this programme as a podcast on iTunes, and if you like what you hear and would like to support the world this week you can make a donation or open up a subscription at worldthisweek.co.uk and until next week from me carolyn scott and me jack foster goodbye goodbye.